Greetings today in Jesus' blessed name. It was good hearing what was shared already this morning. We look forward to spending a little more time looking into God's Word and what God has in mind for us. Topic today is prepared for mission work, and I've added starting at home. You know, um, there is a false concept about missionary work, and that is somehow that if I could just get on foreign sin somewhere, I'll become a missionary. But it's a deep truth that if you're not a missionary here, you won't be one over there either. It's very important that we broaden our vision, at least to the point that Jesus gave us, broaden our vision to see that missionary work is everywhere. It's everywhere. There are some, as was mentioned earlier, that are specifically called and specifically sent to a particular work amongst a people group somewhere else, but the work is everywhere. So let's talk a little bit about this. Prepared for mission work, starting at home. Maybe we'll just take a a few minutes and define the title. What does it mean, or what do I mean when I say the word prepared? I thought of exercised and disciplined in readiness. Exercised and disciplined. Do you think it takes that to be a missionary? Sure it does. It does. It takes that to be a Christian worker wherever we're working. We need to exercise ourselves in God's Word. We need to exercise ourselves in prayer that we might have the heartbeat of God. And we exercise ourselves so that we can go to the next step of discipline. Now, we're not just talking about discipline for discipline's sake, but the discipline of thinking Outside of my world and circumstances that are around me. The discipline of saying, God, who would you have me to speak to next? Now, maybe that's strange to some of you. But that is a right thinking. It's a right thinking. We are called to be what? Witnesses. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Acts. And while you're doing that, Acts chapter 1, we're going to go a little bit further in our understanding. Prepared is exercise and discipline and readiness. So what's mission work? Well, mission work is prayer, seeking God's perfect will, obeying the Spirit, reaching out to the lost, presenting the truth, and disciplining new, or discipling, sorry, new believers, etc. I don't think the list can end there, but I don't have place or time to put it all. But those are some of the things that are involved in mission work. And then what does starting at home mean? Well, beginning, but not limited to, my own locale, region, people group, language group, and culture group. That's where it needs to start. Guess what? If you can't work amongst your own, you won't work amongst others. But this is the place to start, not stop. Okay, so prepared for mission work, starting at home. This is all for a purpose. I am in readiness to do the perfect will of the Lord Jesus Christ and fulfill his calling. That needs to be personally. I am personally ready. I need to be subject to him in such a way that I'm ready to do his will. I'm ready to do his will today. Not, well, yeah, I I want to get to that place sometime in the future. Forget that. It's a decision. I'm ready to do his will today. 
personally? How about as a family? I'm ready to do his will as a family. Sometimes family mission work is excellent, surpasses what we can do as one-on-one or individuals. There's times that situations arise where with my wife, I can witness more freely to someone than I could without her. There are times where with my children, I could witness more freely to someone than without them. And so it goes past a personal vision to a family vision. And then finally, it needs to also be a congregational vision. We look at ourselves as a body, a local body. Jesus Christ is the head. Well, as far as I know, the head is where far to find out what the will of the head is. Now, if your head tells your hand to scratch your ear, what's your hand going to do? Does it second guess the head? Or does it just go do what it was asked to do? So what is it that we're asked to do? We need to recognize this is why he left us here. I've often said, it would be really neat that the day you get born again, you just get whisked up in a a tornado and taken right to glory. Wouldn't that be neat? Could he do that? He could, but he chooses not to. I mean, let's face it. Elijah kind of went up in a fiery chariot, didn't he? But it wasn't before he was a faithful witness. And so it is with us. God has called us to be a faithful witness. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. Well, I got news for you. If it's just to go up in a whirlwind, you don't need the Holy Ghost. You'll be in his presence soon enough. But he sent the Holy Ghost with a very specific desire and that you and I might be witnesses to a lost and dying world that will go to hell if they don't get converted. So we've been given a gift on purpose. Aside of that, we've been given individually gifts. And so we need each other in our various giftings to be able to fulfill this work, this vision, this role that Christ the head has given. Verse 6, when they therefore were come together, they asked him saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? How about that? Already then they were still bantering about how's the fulfillment of prophecies going to be? You know, a lot of wheel spinning can happen in that one, can't it? I can decide that I know exactly and you decide you know exactly and we're going to kind of... Uh, I was just down with some brothers in Texas and I said, now brothers, you got to remember, cockfighting is not legal in the USA. They said it is in Texas. <laughs> so I lost my, my uh, tool there to try, to try to get them to see that arguing over prophecy is probably not profitable. It wasn't for Jesus' disciples. They were so worried about how this whole thing's going to play itself out for their nation, how this is going to play itself out for the end. But you know what? There are men who are arguing about that. They're arguing about the beginning. They're forgetting to live holy in the middle. 
We're called to be a witness. We're called to be a testimony. We're called to be a vessel that Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit can work through and can relate the love that he has for the lost around us on every side. And so let's keep reading. Jesus said unto them, verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Whoa. That was a revelation that those disciples were not ready for. How about us? You know, they got ready for it. And as time went on, they understood what it meant. It took them some time. It really did. How about us? Are we getting it? God's spirit was sent. You shall be what? Witness. The Greek word's martyr. And that doesn't mean you have to die, but you have to be ready to lay down your life. Martyr and witness is the same word in Greek. A witness for this king. A witness for this kingdom. So how do we prepare? What do we do? It starts with a vision. And that leads us to a purpose. And that purpose brings us to goals. Goals get pretty practical of what I'm going to do. The first thing I had to think of was, you know, we pray many times what Jesus taught us to pray. We sometimes call it the Lord's Prayer, but it was really the disciples' prayer. And in that prayer, we say the words, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And in the end, thine be the glory. Are we serious when we pray that prayer? Thy kingdom come. Well, then I have to ask myself, what am I doing to answer my own prayer? What am I doing to bring his kingdom here on earth? We know that the kings of this earth are not doing anything to bring that kingdom. And we know that the the peoples of this world aren't interested in that kingdom per se. But what am I doing to present that kingdom and give that offering? We uh, were sharing yesterday with the brothers on the board for Turkey a little bit. And we talked about, you know... The sad part of the Middle East is the greetings of peace, the Jews, Shalom Aleichem, the Muslims, Salam Aleichem, and yet there's no peace because both of them are missing the Prince of Peace. What are we going to do about that? If he is the king and he has a kingdom and we're praying, Lord, thy kingdom come, what are we going to do to make that happen? You know, misguided souls are part of an organization called ISIS because they believe that there should be a kingdom for the Islamic State. And they're doing something about it. It's not a good thing they're doing. But they are committed to doing something about it. And the sad reality is, is that if you could unmask Those dark veiled faces, you would find many of them are white, European youths that were raised in nominal Christianity and repulsed 
by its unwillingness to be a discipled, disciplined, active kingdom. What will you do about it? Well, we can always just say we're we're in Lebanon County. We're in Lancaster County. That's way over there. They can't bother us over here. Don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. Just over the mountain in Pottsville. We work with Muslim people. Some of those Muslim people are white. They were raised Catholic. And they're angry. And they're hard to reach. They're hard to convince to come back to what they have put off. Now, that's our job. It's our job to convince them that, yes, what we're offering you is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not to be a Catholic. We're offering you to be a follower of the King of Kings, not some organization or institution that has become dead, cold, and indifferent and basically just wants your money. We have a job on our hands, do we not? And so it starts with vision, purpose, goals. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and thine be the glory. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of John, Gospel of John, very familiar portion of Scripture, chapter 13. We won't read uh, the whole feet washing there. I think most all of us hear that pretty regularly. It's good for us to ponder it, though, as often as we hear it. There always seems to be something more to learn, isn't there? But I'd like to look there in John chapter 13 and begin reading at verse 13. After Jesus finished with what he did in washing the disciples' feet, feet, he says, You call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one to another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom they of whom he spake. He then lying on Jesus' breast saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. 
Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Now, I'd like to talk about love. It's a highly abused subject in mainline Christianity, because somehow love gets confused with just a lack of love, or what's called tolerance, which is really indifference. When I see the lost, and they're about to perish, I am not willing to do a thing, because I just love them. No, you don't. No, you don't. Don't deceive yourself. If you love them, you'd stop them. You'd do something to intervene. It's not possible to say you love them because Jesus didn't love like that. What did Jesus do to love you? Was he willing to let you just go to hell? He intervened. And he intervened to the price of his own life. And he intervened to the price of his own life before he knew whether you would accept it or not. On the chance that you would accept it, he intervened with his own life. On the chance that you would accept it. Love. We need to have love first for Christ and his kingdom. That brings us humility as we work with other people. If there's a key ingredient that we need in preparing for missions, it's humility. If we've got a proud heart and our heart is just lifted up and we think that we've got it all and, and they don't have anything... We might as well stay home. We'll make enough trouble at home without going anywhere else. We'll make enough trouble in our own house without having to go outside of our house. And so humility is something we need. We need. Now, let's face it. By nature. How many of us are humble by nature? I'm just so glad you didn't raise your hand because I would have had to make the laughing stock out of you the day. The person who says, I'm humble by nature and throws up his hand is showing his pride. (laughs) We are not humble by nature. We need to own that. By nature, we are proud. We're proud about different things, but we're proud. And until we can see that for what it is and take it to the Lord Jesus and have it crucified, and we might have to do that today and we might have to do that again this evening. We might have to do it again first thing tomorrow morning. Because guess what? That one's pretty resilient. He keeps coming back. And he's got many heads. Many heads. You think you've cut off the one and you feel pretty good about it. Guess what? He bites you again. We need humility in our lives. The disciples needed humility in their lives. The very fact that Jesus washed their feet was because they didn't have humility in their lives. No one was willing to be the servant. They all thought they should have been served. And so Jesus said, all right, if you all think you'll be served, I'll serve you. But that wasn't even right. Peter knew it immediately. It wasn't right. But it was too late. It was too late. The pride had already taken control of things. And Jesus' humility was the only thing that could conquer it. Praise God. It does conquer it. The second thing I see is a love for Jesus' lordship. When I love Jesus and he is my Lord, I don't need to fear suffering. I don't need to. Doesn't mean I won't. But I don't need to. That perfect love casts out fear in my heart, in my life. 
that says, how could I do that? I might, I might get hurt. Ah, but a love for Jesus and his lordship gives me a willingness to suffer. Think about Peter. Peter, who wasn't willing that day to say that I even know who he is, and denied him three times, according to one of the Gospels, with vehemency and cursing, to try to prove that what he was saying was true, that I don't know who he is, later was willing to stand up and boldly proclaim the same Jesus to thousands of Jews who could have stoned him on the spot. What changed? Well, the heart of Peter, of course, he got born again. That, that's the first place to start. But you won't get born again if you're not going to make Christ your Lord. And he became the focus of Peter. He became the purpose of Peter. And proclaiming his kingdom became the goal. And whether I live, I am the Lord's. And whether I die, I am the Lord's. So therefore, whether I live or whether I die, I am the Lord's. What are you going to do to me? Send me home? Go ahead, make my day. There is a boldness that comes from a relationship to Jesus Christ and making him Lord that gives us a willingness to suffer if need be. Now, that didn't mean Peter went looking for. I don't think he did. And he had holy boldness, not unholy rudeness. You see, sometimes we get those two mixed together. But Peter was willing to suffer after that day and what God had done in his heart. Next thing I see is a love for Jesus that causes us to stand fast, though others may betray or deny. David knew what it was when he said, though 10,000 fall on my right side. 10,000? You know, I want you to think about something. As you sit here today, go back 10 years and think about somebody you know who was your dear brother, your dear sister. They were walking with us. They're not walking with God at all today. Lord willing, I'll be teaching Bible school tomorrow and I have to think of it every time I face a class in Bible school. Now, I've been going to Ephraim's Bible school since back in the 90s. Where will these people be 15 years from today? Some will be faithful, sold out, lovers of the Lord. And though they would all say they are today, some will not be. And some of those that I can think of from the 90s and the early 2000s are not serving the Lord whatsoever today. We need purpose that takes us past today and says, I'm going to hold on to this Jesus no matter what. That is of great preparation for witnessing. Because if you're not completely convinced of what you're trying to sell, it becomes mighty hard to sell it. Now, before I was a Christian, I managed a TV and appliance store. And although I was not a godly man and my Jewish boss was not a godly man, there was something distinctively different between us. He could sell the most profitable thing that we had in the store, and I couldn't. I sold as many appliances and televisions as he did easily. But there was one thing that we sold that I couldn't sell. Extended service policies. I couldn't sell them. I didn't believe one stitch in those things. 
And they made us money hand over foot. They were 80% profit, but I couldn't, I couldn't sell them. I couldn't bring myself to trying to convince somebody else to buy something I would never buy. And if you're not convinced in Jesus Christ and His kingdom and you don't have it that it's gonna maintain you and sustain you until the end, you're gonna have a hard time selling it to somebody else. That's a preparation for missionary work. A love for Jesus. That equals accepting God's chastening without even understanding it. Think of Job. Job became a testimony and has been a testimony for thousands of years. And he was being chastened of the Lord in a very gentle way. There really wasn't a lot that Job had to correct, but there were a few things when you read the whole book that weren't quite right in Job's heart. And he accepted the chastening of the Lord even though he didn't understand it. You know what, if we can't accept the chasing of the Lord, whether we understand it or not at the moment, we'll throw in the towel. Yes, we will. And our witness that we witnessed will become a negative witness. We need to be convinced to such a point that we will even accept chastening. We need to love Jesus. And that will cause us to have a love for one another. Jesus says, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Now, I don't know how it is for you, but that's hard. That is hard. It wasn't love your neighbor as you love yourself. That was all through the Old Covenant. That just says, I'm here and I will love my neighbor up to here. But Jesus says this is a new commandment and it is going to be totally, totally against your flesh because you love yourself to here. I want you to love your neighbor up to here. Jesus loved you. He loved me more than he loved himself. That's what made it a new commandment. And you and I need to have a love for each other that is that high if we really want to prepare to be missionaries. If we congregationally want to be a witness and a light and a testimony to a lost and dying world, Jesus said that's how it's going to happen. Love for fellow believers is going to be the first and foremost step in preparing for missionary work. Paul, or pardon me, Peter says it there in 1 Peter chapter 2. And might we just turn there so we see what else he had to say. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, he simply says three words. Love the brotherhood. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may be by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put the silence, the ignorance of foolish men, as free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as a servants of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. 
Wow. That's a big territory to cover, but I'll tell you what, once we've covered love the brotherhood, we've come a long way towards accomplishing this one. And you know, if you want to witness to others that are lost, that there is a kingdom that is different than the kingdoms they know, you're going to have to prove it to them. The kingdoms they know know how to hate each other. Now, the kingdoms they know have fellowship, but it's limited fellowship. Hey, I'm challenged as I witness to Yamani Muslim people. They're more connected to family than I am. My friend Abdul has been here 25 years. He calls his brothers, he calls his children every day over in Yemen. And so to try to convince him that what I'm talking about in this kingdom of God is a kingdom that goes past anything he understands. Pretty challenging, isn't it? Pretty challenging. But within the brotherhood, and this is one of my challenges to him, you have uh, Sunni, you have Shiite, and they're killing each other every day in the country of Yemen for the last 19 months. Yet they're all Muslim. How can you explain that, Abdul? Where is the love for your brother? We need to have a love within our own brotherhood or we will not be able to present it to someone else. It won't work that way. And then finally, a love for all people, just like the Lord Jesus had. You know, we talked about starting in your own people group, but guess what? It's going to have to go past that one. And be a love for all people. And so that brings us to the thoughts. And we're going to turn you back to the book of Acts chapter 2. Cross-cultural stretching. Yes, starting at home is a good place. But even at home, you will find cross-cultural stretchings. And they're needful. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Beautiful account of the birth of the church. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews. Devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and the dwellers of Mesopotamia, and in Judea and Cappadocia, in Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, in Egypt, and the parts of Libya about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Now stop and think about this. This was the people groups listed that made up the first church. The 3,000 that were baptized at Pentecost were drawn from these people groups. I read 19 different people groups mentioned here, counting the Galileans. 19 different people groups. And do you realize that if you look at a map, they were from as much as 1,600 miles apart, which in that day were eons apart because of slow transportation. They were from such diverse people groups. They were from different racial groups. They were from different culture groups. 
Their heart languages were different. They had only really one common denominator, and that was they were all Jews. But Jews that were proselytes as well as Jews that were born Jews. So there was not even a a constant, let's say, Hebrew influence there. They were from all over and all backgrounds. How on earth would you ever put together a church? Who would in their right mind try to start a church with that foundation? Well, before you go too far down that thought of who in their right mind, let's say that God did it. And let's say that God did it on purpose. It wasn't an accident. It was when the day of Pentecost was fully come. These people were there. They wouldn't have been there a week earlier. They wouldn't have been there two weeks later. And so it did not happen by accident that God put all these different cultural groups together. Why, God, it would have been much simpler to just stick to the Hebrews all from Galilee. They all have the same ways. They all have the same food. They all think the same. They all look the same. It would have been much easier, God. Why didn't you just do it that way? It's a simple answer. He didn't want to. His heart is for the peoples of the world from all these places, from all these cultures, from all these tongues. And with all the challenges and difficulties that it brings, guess what? God doesn't care about that. He knows there's going to be challenges. We're human beings. We're still in this flesh. And this flesh rises up sometimes and just thinks it really has the right answer compared to my brother who's from another culture. But is my flesh always right? It thinks it is. But it's not. It's not. Is God always right? He's always right. And so as we come into this thing of cross-cultural stretchings, we need to recognize that. Now, you know, these Jews had one more thing in common, and that's the blessing. And that's the thing that carried them. And that is that they came that day to a faith A common faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And that was what brought them together. And that's what was keeping them together. I really have in my mind pondered this one. But here's a question for you to ponder. That day when those 3,000 received baptism. Do you think that they all realized that they were starting and becoming part of a new faith? Or do you think that they thought this is just a new sect of Judaism. And I'm going to say before you come up to a conclusive answer, jump up to Acts 15 and look at the Jerusalem Council and the question at hand. And then I'm going to tell you that most of these people did not think this was something new. They did not think that this was a new faith. They felt this was Judaism. Just they had come to see Messiah. But it grew to the place where they recognized that God's heart was even bigger than this 19 culture groups that were already mentioned. And it included all the Gentile world. How about us? Can we get that same vision? That's a stretch. Yes, it is. It's a stretch when we're talking about cross-culture to that extent. You know, when we walk through the problems of cross-cultural realities, may I just tell you, back in 98, when God visited Eilig down in Haiti, and we had several hundred people get saved, well, they were all one culture, but I wasn't the same culture. Neither were any other missionaries. 
So we got stretched. When you have 300 new converts that really don't know their left hand from their right hand when you're talking about how it is to serve Christ, uh, your theology will get stretched. I'll never forget one Sunday morning, a man who had gotten converted, he, uh, he had been living with a woman and had seven children with her. They weren't married. And that, that little man lived down over the side of a cliff. And I'm going to say about 1,500 feet at, down that cliff. And when he looked up one day and he saw this heavy old white man coming down this hill, slipping and sliding in the gravel to get down to his house, he thought to himself, God, whatever that man is risking his neck to come to tell me, I'm going to listen. And God had already put on my heart a message because I had heard that this man, Jack, had never been willing to listen to anybody challenge him about him living with a woman without marriage. And that was the very intent that I had come over that mountain that day. I was going to sit Jack down. He was attending church. And I was going to lay it out to him that, Jack, you are living in sin. And you can't keep living like this way. There's no way that you can uh, follow Jesus Christ while living in sin this way. And when I sat down, Jack broke. He broke. And we talked about he didn't have any money. He could barely feed his seven children. How's he ever going to throw a big wedding? I said, you're not. We're going to have a simple little wedding. You don't need a big wedding. You don't need to buy, you know, a beef to kill and feed everybody and a couple sacks of rice. And you don't need a fancy dress and you don't need a golden ring and you don't need a suit and tie. These are all cultural things that Haiti tried to push on Jack. So he never could afford to get married. Jack, you don't need any of that. And you know what? He believed. He stepped forward. He repented of his sins. We had a little simple wedding for him. We ended up baptizing Jack. Great. One Sunday morning, Jack walks into church. Doesn't say a word to anybody. He's carrying his baby. Blood running off the face of the baby. Down over Jack's good clothes. Jack walks right up, sits on the men's side, gets down there and about four seat back and just sits down like nothing. That was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. So we called Jack aside and said, Jack, what's going on? Well, the neighbor lady and I were having a debate. She was arguing with me and she always gives me a hard time. And he said she threw a stone and hit my baby in the head. Well, it wasn't but a few minutes and the neighbor lady showed up at the back of church. Now, see, you can't just count on having regular church there. It doesn't work like that. Anyhow, so I go out and we talk to the neighbor lady and she's saying that I got into an argument with him and like I did in the past, I threw myself on the ground and rolled around and beat myself with a rock so I could say he beat me up. She admitted that. And she said he took a rock and hit the baby himself so he could lie and say that I did it. Now what do you do? So we needed to put the thing on hold a little bit so we could do some more research. We did some more research because I was sure that this voodoo princess was lying to me. Unfortunately, I found out the reality was Jack was lying to me. And so we called Jack before the leaders again. Jack, we have reason to believe 
that you hit your own baby on the head with a rock and you lied to us. Jack put his head down. He said, you're right, that's what I did. Jack was challenged to divorce himself from the way he would have done things before he was a Christian. And guess what? At that moment, he went back to default into the rut and did just what he would have done. Because he said, you know what? She'd have gone to court. She did this to me before. She beats herself up. She goes to court. She says, I beat her up. And then I have to pay a fine. And I don't have the money to pay a fine. Jack, whatever the cost, Jack, you have to tell the truth. And he knew it. He knew it. God had smote his heart already. He knew it. Jack, there's only one thing that you can do to make this thing right. First off, you need to apologize to the lady because you you made an accusation about her that wasn't true. I don't care if she's ungodly or not. It still wasn't true. And so we got them together and he made his apology. I said, now the second thing is, you deceived the whole church. You need to stand before the church and you need to face them and you need to tell them what you've done and repent before the whole church. Anybody want to stand in line for that one? And I thought, you know what? My guess, he's, he's, he's going to run. He's going to say, that's it, I'm done. I just give up. I can't do this thing, I'm leaving. But Jack got up in front of the church and he confessed. He confessed. It wasn't easy. We had to help him continue to out with it, Jack. You know, tell the rest of the story. Let's have the whole thing. But he did. And you know what? As the years went on, I, my, 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 my first thought was, you know what? I don't believe this man was ever converted in the first place. You ever think that way about somebody? But as years went on, I had to repent. Because I couldn't see what he was seeing. I couldn't feel what he was feeling. And I saw that he was pretty genuine when he came past that point of repentance. I'm going to tell you is when you're talking about cross-cultural relationships, it spells hard work. It spells stretching you out of a comfortable spot. Now, let's just imagine together that here in Shaperstown, you've got about 900 people living in the borough. If all of a sudden 300 of those 900 people in the borough got really hungry and thirsty for God and showed up like they did in I-League in 98, and they'd stand up in the back of your church and say, I've been Lutheran all my life. I've been Catholic all my life. I've been Reformed all my life, and I just want to get converted. What would you do with that? 300 of them. What would you do with that in one year? We pray for revival. I'm going to tell you, that's what revival was. Yeah, first the ones that were in the church got born again, and then all of a sudden the ones in the community started getting born again. Well, what would you do with that? How would we handle that situation? That would be a cross-cultural stretch, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. Walking through problems of cross-cultural stretching... I like to uh, give this cultural evaluation. We look at cultural elements. There are parts of every people group's culture that are actually pro-gospel 
When we got to Haiti, the women had their heads nicely covered. You couldn't see hair for the most part, maybe a tiny little braid sticking out here or there, but you couldn't see their hair. And so when they got born again, we didn't have to teach them to put on a covering. We just had to give them the education to explain why they were already doing what they were doing. Catholic Church never taught them that. That was a cultural element that was for the gospel. It was pro-gospel. Then we had cultural elements that were neutral. Neutral to the gospel. Uh, didn't make a, a difference one way or another. It was different than what we had, but it wasn't necessarily wrong. Just different. There's lots of those. I won't spend a lot of time elaborating. But for those, we needed to practice some toleration. Because I do something a certain way doesn't mean it's the only right way. It's our nature to think it is, but it's not. It's not. You say the old saying is there's more than, uh, more than one way to skin a cat. Well, I haven't spent a lot of time skinning cats, but there is more than one way. And if it accomplishes the job, it doesn't really matter which way you choose. We uh, spend more time skinning hogs. And uh, I had some brothers, probably some of them sitting here, that came last year to skin hogs at my place. And they had a little, some kind of little thing on a, on a utility knife. And they took strips, 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 little tiny strips. And we pulled all these little strips off that pig. And guess what? At the end, we had a skinned hog. I never skinned a hog like that in my life before. Probably won't again. But nevertheless, that was the way we did it that day. Was my way right and their way wrong? No. I still have a preference. They have a preference. Fine. Get the job done. Cultural elements can be that way. But then there are cultural elements that are anti-gospel. Like living together, having seven children, not being married. That's anti-gospel. We don't have to be ashamed to confront that because that just isn't right. That isn't right in any culture. It's wrong no matter where you go. It's sin. Needs to be addressed. We need to be able to seek true unity in diversity. It's hard for me to picture. I know what it it was when I brought 300 new converts into a church in a year. What was it like to have 3,000 in one day? From all 19 different people groups and language groups. What was it like to have church? That would be pretty unique. We need to learn to appreciate others' cultural backgrounds, their gifts, their skills, their abilities, their expertise, their language, their foods, their customs, and sometimes their practices that even exceed our own. We need to learn to appreciate them. And so we identify our group purpose and goals. Acts chapter 20, where we are, or pardon me, Acts chapter 2, where we are there in verse 40 to 47 This group of 3,000 people had some goals, and here's what they were. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourself from this untoward generation. Then they gladly received his word, were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayer. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all men. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now we need to find that unity through diversity. They found that they were abiding together in the apostles' doctrines. You won't go wrong with imitating that one. Abiding together in the apostles' doctrines. Important practice. Fellowship. They were practicing the ordinances together. Another important practice. 
They were praying together so that they might stay together. That was another part of getting past the difficulties of cultural stretching. They were bearing one another's burdens in love, sacrificially, laying down their own goods for the sake and the benefit and the love of the brethren. Another important piece of the puzzle. And they were praising God together and influencing the lost by their love example. Those are the things that are needful. So what will you do with what you've heard today? I'm going to end the message today with just an introduction to a book. I was just at CLE down in Harrisonburg, Virginia, found this book. It's called Engaging with Muslims. And uh, just read the introduction to you to whet your appetite for the rest of the book. It says this. I met him in a coffee shop near my house. He was from the Middle East, friendly as I expected, but nothing else went as planned. As we met together, I was astonished at how God had been working in his life. Rahid's father was a wealthy businessman who had studied outside of his country and returned home a practical atheist. He raised his family to be wealthy, but without religion, even though they lived in a predominantly Muslim country. Rahid grew up not knowing much about the Quran or prayer times, other than that he was in taught in school. So when he went to college, he was filled with questions. That was the time of 911 attack at the U.S. and colleges, college campuses around the Middle East were alive with Islamic radicalism. But when Rahid asked what he thought were very reasonable questions, he was threatened for doubting Islam. He was called a kafir or infidel. Because his father was wealthy, Rahid was able to travel. He visited the East to explore Hinduism and Buddhism, but he instinctively knew that there was only one God. As he continued his thinking, Rahid struggled to understand why Muslims kill one another and why they commit immoral acts. As a result, he began to study Christianity. In his country, they have a saying, eat with the Jews and sleep with the Christians. You can eat with Jews as they, their food is kosher or equivalent to halal. But you can trust Christians. When you are asleep, they won't kill or hurt you. Catch that one? That was from the Muslim, a Muslim proverb from a Muslim country. Rahid was attacked and shot not long after returning from his travels because he questioned Islam and was intrigued by Christianity. The Muslims around him wanted him dead. So he fled to Jordan and managed to get refugee status to come to the West. While in Jordan, at an orientation briefing with other Muslims, he was told that when he got to America, Christians would come to his house and give him things. He was advised to take what they gave him, but not listen to what they had to say. So know what you're up against when you're working with refugees. Secretly, Rahid couldn't wait. He longed to hear the truth of the gospel. They also told him that if he ever went to a church, he would be prohibited from entering. Americans just don't like Muslims. That's what Muslims think about you and me. When he arrived in the U.S., he was placed in an apartment with other Muslims and he waited for the Christians to visit. They didn't come. He moved to a new place, unable to live with other Muslim refugees and waited longer. He walked past a local church but was afraid to go in because of what he had been told. It would be shameful to be asked to leave. Would you ask a Muslim to leave your church? They think you might. He began to think God was angry with him, so he prayed, God, just let someone come to my house. Please, don't be mad at me. 
One day, not long after, he found a pamphlet on the ground near his door. It was for a free Bible. He immediately wrote and asked for a Bible and more information about Christianity. They sent him the Bible, but it was in English and his language wasn't very good. He was frustrated once again. This time he wrote and begged, just send me someone to tell me about Christianity. I will pay for them to come to me. I don't need anything. Just send me someone. If that were an only man's heart cry, that would be terrible. But he's not the only one. The woman who received this message by God's grace happened to be the cousin of a pastor at my church. She called her cousin, her cousin called me, and I set up a time to meet with Rahid. After meeting with him for six months and being at church with other believers, Rahid was baptized. What a glorious time of celebration we had that day, rejoicing with our church who had grown to love him. Rahid continues to grow, learn, serve, and grow a wonderful brother in Jesus Christ. And Jesus tells us the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The reason the workers are few is because we have a mission-send mindset. Well, okay, the pastor is supposed to do this. The missionary is supposed to do this. The street worker is supposed to do this. No, we're all supposed to do this. We need to own it. It's ours. Jesus didn't pick one of the twelve and say, go be a missionary. He sent them. The harvest is plentiful. I worked in Islamic world for over 18 years and I never felt it plentiful. And yet there was a steady trickle of people coming to Christ. There were men and women who were ready to be harvested. Over the course of the last year, the agency I was with discovered an amazing truth. We don't, we don't see decisions for Jesus where we are not sharing the gospel. Is that an amazing truth? That you make you feel like saying, duh. Okay, that's not so amazing. Perhaps it's even a bit simplistic, but it's powerful nonetheless. If we are sharing the gospel, even in the hardest parts of the world, we see people come to Christ. We see men and women make Jesus Lord and Savior of their lives. However, if we aren't faithful in sharing the gospel, we don't see anyone come to faith. That must be what Jesus meant when he went on to say, Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So what will you do with what you've heard today? Will you love the brotherhood? Will you be reconciled to your brothers where there's been problems, contentions, issues, relational problems? Will you be reconciled? Will you do it for Christ's sake? Will you do it for his kingdom's sake? Will you do it for the witness of the church? Will you do it? Will you lay down your assumed rights? It has to be my way or the highway. Will you lay those down? Truly be prepared for missionary work. Let's stand together to pray. Yes, Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for challenges from your word. Help us, Lord, each one to be faithful in whatever, whatever avenue you've called us into. We're not all the same. We're not all the same temperament. We're not all the same personality. We won't all fill the same roles, but Father, we know one thing. You've called us all to be a witness. And so help us to be faithful wherever we are, wherever, where, whatever we're doing, that we can be planning and thinking and praying for your direction as to who we might witness to next. Lord, bless us and make us a blessing to each other. We thank you for each one and just bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.